This is The Next Shift with Sunil Badami on Disrupt Radio. Working from home to hybrid workplaces. Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. Work is changing faster every day and the future of work is already here. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? And how can you manage a bad boss or that Gen Z intern? The Next Shift with Sunil Badami. We challenge and inspire you to adapt, evolve and become an unstoppable force. I'm Sunil Badami. I've had more jobs than I've had haircuts, including as a journalist, broadcaster, academic and researcher specialising in the future of work. And together we'll explore the future of work today and how you can shift up to the next level, wherever you work, whatever you do. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. We all know him, or we've had him, the micromanager. The underminer, the credit stealer, the blame shifter, the backstabber, the ditherer, even the shouter. You may end up spending more time with your boss or manager than your spouse or family. And let's face it, if they're a bad boss, it can end up making what you do for a living a living nightmare. So how do so many people end up being bad bosses? What makes them bad bosses? And can bad bosses ever get better? I'm Sunil Badami. Today on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio, we'll find out why good people can become bad bosses and how to help them become better leaders. Welcome to The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. Okay, well, we all know about those workplace sociopaths who make our working lives a misery. Bad bosses can not only damage your and your colleagues' mental health and workplace culture and morale, they can also affect your business's bottom line. But are all bad bosses shitty people too? Or are they just good people in over their head? What makes good people or even high performers become bad bosses? Our first guest has spent the last 25 years helping managers and organisations answer those questions and address those issues. You may remember Lyndall Hughes, Managing Director of award-winning organisational health consulting firm Q5 Australia, telling us all about the Great Resignation, which apparently is sweeping boardrooms and C-suites across the country. As a sought-after executive coach, Lyndall's coached and mentored leaders in the ASX50 and globally equivalent companies professional services firms, as well as federal and state government agencies. And she's here to tell us what makes bosses bad and how to help them lead better. Disrupt Radio. Welcome back, Lyndall Hughes from Q5 Partners. How are you? Very well, thank you. Lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you again too. Okay, look, we all know those bad bosses. We've all had one, the credit taker and the blame shifter and the gaslighter and the shirker. There's so many different kinds of bad boss. How do people like that get promoted into positions of leadership? Oh, uh, you know what? I went through a period of time where for some reason if there was a leader who was being investigated for bullying, somehow I would get a call from people in culture or HR to come and coach them. So I've met a few. 
And the thing, there's probably a pattern that I've seen. And again, this is just from my perspective. Quite often, it is poor leadership style. There's not a lot of really nasty people out there, is my view. And maybe they're rose-tinted glasses. Of course, they do exist. But a lot of leaders or managers who are considered bad bosses have been allowed to become bad bosses because they've been rewarded for the wrong things over time. So quite often they've been good performers. So, for example, someone might run events and they might be really good at getting sponsorship. They might be really good at getting great events set up that make a lot of money for the business. But they've not been so great at managing their people but that's been tolerated and they've been promoted based on the successes and at no point in their career has someone stopped and gone, you know what, you really need to change your style until it gets to the point that it's almost too late and someone's done a claim of bullying. It's letting stuff go. It's tolerating poor performance from a very early stage in career is one aspect of the problem. And in terms of the people themselves that I have coached and worked with, they just didn't have an understanding because they've just been allowed, but this is how I do things and why all of a sudden is it wrong? It's interesting you should say that because the Peter Principle, formulated by the Canadian hierarchologist Lawrence Peter, suggested not only that people tend to rise to the level of their incompetence or that work is only accomplished by those who haven't yet reached their level of incompetence, like events. But accomplishment in one role, like events, doesn't necessarily translate into leadership. But the model has always been, you're a great salesman or you're a great engineer or you're great at events, therefore we'll make you the person who leads everybody else who does that or the whole company. So how can organisations find the right leaders for teams, projects or their entire organisation? And look, that's a great question and absolutely that is a pattern for the decades where technically great people are promoted to the next level and have struggled. I think a lot of corporations are aware of that today. I think leadership and what the good corporations and good businesses know is that leadership isn't a one-time decision. It's not a one-time learning or development event. It's actually funneling good people, supporting good people right through their careers. So before they get promoted, having good assessment and criteria to promote people that is a little bit broader than just pure technical excellence. So I think Companies are starting to move away from that. It certainly does exist. But again, in the larger organisations we work with, they're starting to accommodate it, or they have been accommodating it quite well for a while now, where they're starting to create people leader positions and non-people leader positions, but still calling them all leaders and treating them equally with respect. I think it's looking at it systemically, not just as a one-point-one time issue. So what makes a good leader or manager? Oh, I think there's many things that make a good leader or manager. I think one of the key things is thinking about other, first and foremost, not before thinking about self, looking at context, so really understanding the environment, understanding the environment for each individual, each team, for the organisation shifts all the time. I think challenging self. So if something goes well, really looking outside of self and saying, what made that good? What did the team do? Not patting self on the back. If something goes wrong or if there's toxicity, which we've mentioned, if, you know, there's something not going well, then it's asking, 
self, what have I done that's contributed to that? So really seeing self as both something that can improve things and has responsibility for things and little blaming. So can bad bosses become good bosses? I would like to think so. (laughs) There is a piece of me that knows we're all wired. We've all got a predisposition. It's not a set point. We can shape and learn and use new techniques. It is an openness to learning that would be the key criteria. If a bad boss was someone who felt that this is how it should be, this is how it's always should be, and I'm always right, a mind trap of being right, of rightness and not looking to alternatives, well, then probably someone that's going to be quite stuck. And I'd almost make decisions around that pretty quickly. If there's someone who can open up to possibility, they talk about this growth mindset, but someone who's curious enough to learn and to test and to seek guidance and support, well, that they could move their way towards being a much better boss. You're on the next shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, and we're asking Q5 Partners Management Advisor Lyndall Hughes, what makes bosses bad and how to make them better? So where would you start on, I don't know, Elon Musk? Oh, I don't, I don't know about, I don't know enough about Elon Musk, really. <laughs> if I characterise, it's someone who has a strong sense of what they think is right or wrong, a strong sense of they know what's best. I'd probably just start challenging them with some facts. And they're, they're probably quite a rational person. They'd probably, if you showed them some data and some evidence that different styles have led to different things, then I'd start with that. They're probably not going to listen to an emotional or a human explanation. They probably want the rational. And I'll look, I'll give you an example. So working with its global organisation where head office is outside of Australia, but it has national sales managers. So it's a products company that sells products around Australia. They knew there was a difference between leaders who worked well and led well their teams and those who didn't. And because they were sales managers, you'd get really good data because you've got how much their team sells. And we ran an assessment of those leaders, looking at the qualities, the essentials that make up good leadership. And there was almost a cut right down the middle. Those who brought in the biggest dollars, so very clear indication of productivity, were those that scored the highest in terms of how they treated their people, how connected the people felt and engaged with the organisation and how empowered they felt. So you can get some good data to help some leaders make decisions. A lot of people work in one sector or have one career at one company or one particular profession their whole life. Do the management principles that can help people to be good leaders in, say, sales work across different sectors and roles? I mean, that is... Can you apply them generally or generically, say, from sales to health, or are there very specific differences within each sector or industry or role? I think being a good leader is being a good person to a large extent, treating people well, seeing yourself as part of the team and really treating others as you'd like to treat yourself. So that core element of treating people well, valuing people well, recognising people well, translates across all roles, all sectors. 
But the way you show that will vary. And so it's being attuned to the sector. So, for example, the way you would show that to a very busy frontline healthcare worker might be very different to how you show that to a sales team, for example. So, you know, typically, and again, I'm being stereotypical now, salespeople are often more extroverted. They're probably, for example, going to like more um, external validation, talking about the people, recognising them at forums, where some frontline workers really just like getting on with the job and the recognition they want is what they've done on behalf of someone else, for example, on behalf of the patient and doing that quietly in a corridor. They may not want it sung loudly from the rooftop. Are there any sectors that are more prone to getting bad bosses? Because it's interesting you bring up healthcare. There's been a lot of issues around toxic health work environments and work cultures in healthcare in Australia, in New South Wales especially. Are there any particular sectors that are more prone to getting bad bosses or toxic workplace cultures? I've not seen that pattern and I've worked across sectors. I've worked from paramilitary to not-for-profits, government agencies and private sector. I, I look, I where I do see it, it's where there's enormous pressure and demands and I often talk about bullying behaviours being a, a symptom of underlying pressure. So it's dealing, going down and dealing underneath with what is the cause of some of this. So certainly some organisations have more pressure inherent in the role. But I, again, having said that, if we take police, I've worked with a number of police jurisdictions, um, there's certainly not more there than elsewhere. But then policing is very good at recruiting people, training people. It certainly exists there, but then it's detecting and dealing with it. So I think as long as a lot of those HR things are in place and done well, there shouldn't really be a difference across sectors. Now, you talked before about organisations now starting to identify people who can be go on a leadership path. What are some of the kind of early signs that someone might be a good leader to be able to develop them further as they work through their career? Yeah, and actually have helped some government agencies in New South Wales look at some of their talent strategies and how they do this. One of the things is just really early indications of initiative, seeing things that can be done a little bit differently raising that, being a little bit curious. There's wonderful examples, and again, we'll go back to the healthcare sector, wonderful examples of people who have not been in positions of authority at all, that they've had a job such as getting theatres ready for surgery, but they've had an ability to look at that role differently and to identify improvements. And some of those improvements have led to innovations being scaled across the sector. So it's initiative, it's curiosity, and it's somehow having voice. And it doesn't have to be an extroverted person. It could be someone who just knows how to raise their concerns, show show that they're interested, show that they're looking beyond the immediate. I'm Sunil Badami. So how can you identify who the potential leaders are in your organisation and, and the potential 
workplace bullies before they're promoted into management? Find out after the break with leadership mentor and organisational health expert Lyndall Hughes of Q5 Partners on the next shift on Disrupt Radio. We're back on the next shift with me, Sunil Badami, working out why bosses go bad. So, how has Q5 Partners MD and Executive Coach Lyndall Hughes managed her own tricky bosses? Well, what kind of boss is she? Now, you've just gotten that new job, or your team has just gotten a new boss. What are the warning signs that your new boss is or could be a bad boss? What should we look out for? Oh, oh gosh, I think straight away if there's someone who aren't... If they're not asking truly curious questions. So if someone walks in a door and all of a sudden wants to change things, all of a sudden has a negative opinion of everything, not walking in with curiosity, instantly a red flag. There's that sort of general view of not making any decisions for 90 days, isn't it? So when a leader starts, spend 90 days exploring, understanding, respecting, looking, listening. So if you're not seeing that, I'd be starting to be a little concerned. Okay, you've got a bad boss. How can you manage that bad boss without losing your mind or losing your lolly? What's your recommendation for dealing with a bad boss? Oh, that, that's tough. So if we're assuming the position of being a team member and my immediate boss really is working and behaving in a way that is negative towards me if for some reason you're unable to move so you're if that if you can move because that is just diminishing your well-being if you can't move then it's thinking what do i have within my control and my influence and for many of us we can't move that's the role that we've got and we need that money we, we've got costs that we need to meet and it's a step on the career that we want, so we're stuck there. So it's thinking, what can I control? What can I influence? One thing is my reaction. How can I put in some strategies that when certain things happen that negatively impact me, I can respond a bit differently? And that will depend on you and the nature of what that boss is doing. Set up some boundaries. So is there a way that you can emotionally unhook? Can you set up a pattern in your workday that you can time box when you interact with your manager and you can get yourself ready for that. And if you can't put up boundaries with your manager, if there's a way that you can't lessen the way that you react to it, then think about what can I do outside of work to top up my resilience. So simply be thinking about my own reservoir of well-being and going, okay, it's getting depleted all day at work, so I need to do something equally strong but positive outside of work to top it up. And it's not just going home and doing more jobs, but it's thinking, actually, will I go kick a ball for an extra 20 minutes with my kids? Will I walk my dog? Will I have a really good conversation with friends? What is it that will fuel me up to go in the next day. Will I log on to Glassdoor? <laughs> yes, it's true. Doesn't help you though, but it might help the next person. Have you ever had a bad boss? And how do how has your experience with that bad boss informed the way that you help other bosses not to be bad bosses? 
Yeah, look, I think all of us have had tricky bosses at some point. And look, there's probably been a couple of tricky ones. Gosh, I think I've probably been fortunate a little bit. The nature of the work I do, I can do a bit independently. So I've managed the bosses in terms of the more difficult ones, scheduling meetings during the week, managing communications with that boss, planning, so not just going in unprepared. Really, I've thought about what has motivated that boss um, and I understood for one of them was absolutely finances. For another one, it was their reputation and their ego and how they looked and thinking about how do I present the topics, information I need that, that fuels what they want so they'll just let me get on and do what I need to do. So there's a little bit of analysing them and thinking about what their motives are. Okay, truth time, Lyndall. Are you a good boss? And what could you do better as a boss, do you reckon? I hope I'm a good boss. I've, it so matters to me if there's something that concerns me more than anything. It's am I doing the right thing? And, I, and anyone who's ever met me with me or worked with me, I often say I never want to be a hypocrite. So I always want to leave what I recommend and suggest with clients. I think the biggest challenge I have is time and I'm very open with that. So I need to balance enough good time with my clients because they really matter and they're important to the business. But then I need to balance that with enough good time with my team. Um, And the thing that I think, uh, I don't know, help me, (laughs) but the thing I'd love to be able to do, I have weekly meetings, fortnightly meetings, group meetings, but I think it's just connecting a little bit more. I think we can all challenge ourselves. And that is something that I was even talking about with a lady I work with this morning. So quite genuinely is important. And I'm always challenging myself to do it better. I guess a lot of people might have imposter syndrome. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because like that old saying that the only sane person in the Asylum is the one who wonders if they're really mad. In the same way, you can often see bad bosses don't think that they are bad bosses. So what's the difference between someone who might have imposter syndrome and someone who would like to be a better leader? And what's your advice for them? I've coached a number of leaders who quite genuinely had imposter syndrome. Look, I think more people probably have a degree of imposter syndrome than not particularly the higher you get up in an organisation, and this kind of leads back to the conversation we've had previously about CEOs. Many people, as they move into leadership and get higher, waiting to be found out that they're not really the right person. In working with people who have imposter syndrome, it's stopping to look at their strengths and to really value why they're there and they've been chosen to be there. So I've worked with a number of leaders who have come, again, this picks up other topics we've talked about. They've come from very different sectors. They may have come from healthcare. Now they're running technology businesses, just again, as a complete difference. And they've done an excellent job. They've been promoted. So they've clearly done an excellent job, but they still somehow feel that they're not quite right for the role. So the starting point is to kind of go, how did I get here? I'm clearly doing a lot. I wouldn't look at what everyone else is doing. When I turn up to a conference and see that everyone's got an IT degree and I don't, I've got a different degree, then I'm bringing something different. And if there's the one thing that we know about the future of work, it's bringing difference together 
that'll create the innovation, that'll create what we need in the future. So I think really relish the difference that you bring and magnify it. Inspiring words. Thank you so much, Lyndall Hughes from QE5 Partners. Thank you. Bye. What makes bosses bad? And what makes great leaders? You'll remember Lisa Tongalidis from our chat about meaningful work. After decades of corporate and government experience in HR and leadership, Lisa founded her own career reimagination and leadership consultancy, Human Art, and she knows a thing or two about what makes bosses bad and what good managers can do. It's great to have you back again, Lisa Tongalidis. Thanks, Anil. Love catching up with you. You're one of my favourite people. <laughs> yeah, tell my kids. <laughs> what do you reckon makes a good leader or manager? Trust. Someone you can trust and respect. I think the two have to go hand in hand. There's this, a, an amount of distance that needs to be held between a leader and whoever's their follower because I think without it you can lose that respect but trust is fundamental in any relationship and none more so than a leader and, a, and an employee. If that's missing, there's going to be problems, rifts, some sort of disobedience. I put my hand up there when I say that, Sunil, because when trust goes away, that's when I become naughty. That's when I become mischievous. That's when I step out of line and I have to pull myself up and look for where the trust is and where the trust isn't and then try and navigate that space. So what are the elements of that trust? What constitutes that trust? Say, why would an employee or a subordinate trust a manager? I think it's when the actions don't match the words. I think it's also about consistency. So someone who is consistent is generally someone I feel like I can trust. It's someone who isn't just being a channel for a higher authority that they're truly stepping into the role of a leader and have a say, have a, a thought leadership about them that gives them permission to be my leader. If they're just a channel for a higher authority, trust usually goes, respect usually goes, and it just creates bureaucracy. But it's tricky, isn't it, for a lot of middle managers who are often in the pinch when mm. companies start looking at either enforcing layoffs or making layoffs that they often have to toe the line even if they may not agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's really awful. It's almost like the hypocrisy of being in that sort of position. is. There's going to be some tough times when you have to do that. And time again, I've seen examples either I've had to step into that role or I've seen others step into that role. If you do have to make difficult decisions, as long as you're doing it with kindness and respect for the other usually you can navigate that conversation pretty well. It might be feel a bit awkward and a bit uncomfortable, but they're all necessary parts of life. And so holding that space and really caring about the person you're talking to, whether they're up the food chain, down the food chain, somewhere in the middle, it's just categorically got to sit in the leader's role to do that. And a lot of people run away from it. Trust goes both ways in any relationship. And I'm assuming that the trust a leader has for their reports is mm. that they're going to get the job done and that they may even come up with some good ideas. But who is the responsible for creating the trust in the relationship? Does it go both ways or is it more incumbent on the leader? 
Yeah, it's a, that's a really good point. I think business as a whole, and this is universal, really operates from this win-lose paradigm. And what I haven't necessarily consciously done, but I'm doing so more, more over than ever before, is to really practice from a place of reciprocity, which it doesn't matter who is with me, working with me, reporting to, what have you. There has to be that mutual respect and trust for the skills and knowledge, the capability that each person brings to the relationship. And so it made me feel a bit uncomfortable about authority because I think authority does play a role in leadership. But I don't think your authority is powerful unless you have trust and reciprocity. I think those things have to be like brought together for leadership to be truly effective. Now, you said before that leaders should keep a little bit of distance from their teams, but a lot of companies are now saying, oh, we want to have a, be like startups with a flat structure where everybody chucks in together. Mm. Um, how do you work around that? Yeah, it's a tough one. And I think it comes back to context all the time. And this is the th- one thing that often gets overlooked is we look at some sort of role model or some other business and we try to copy it instead of actually looking at what's going on and what's the right style of leadership for that particular moment in time. And as leaders, we've got to be a startup leader. We've got to be a mature leader. We've got to be a crisis leader. We've got to be all sorts of different types of leaders depending on the context in which we find ourselves in. And the mark of a good leader is someone who can put different hats on depending on the circumstances. So it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all when you're a leader. We're all familiar with the Peter Principle that says that people tend to rise to the level of their incompetence, and we've seen a lot of people do that. But the Canadian hierarchologist, Lawrence Peter, who came up with the principle in the 1970s, said not only that people rise to the level of their incompetence, but that work is accomplished by those who haven't yet reached their level of incompetence. Mm. And accomplishment in one role, say sales or marketing or whatever, doesn't necessarily translate into leadership. So how can organisations find the right leaders for teams or projects? I'm so glad you asked that, Sunil, because this is the one area that I think has been grossly overlooked in organisations for at least the last couple of decades, and that is investing in people development and learning. There's a lot of focus on output and KPIs and results and what have you, but there's a lot of people wanting and needing some nurturing, some self-development, some leadership skills, and it's always the first budget to go. Being in roles like learning and development, I see that's the first, that's the first part of the budget that gets cut Why? every time. Why? Because it's seen as discretionary. But I think it's essential, I'm obviously biased, but now we're at this position where we're at a crisis because we haven't invested in our people, we haven't invested in the skills to navigate complexity, to navigate uncertainty. You're on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami, and we're finding out the one thing that makes bosses bad with Lisa Tongalitis, Chief Creative Officer at Career Reimagination Consultancy Human Art. We're back on the next shift with me, Sunil Badami, working out why bosses go bad. 
of businesses would say, you know what, we make widgets. Why should we be in the education business as well? Mm. We hire people who are appropriately qualified or trained. Why should we have to develop them if they're going to go once we've yeah. given them all those skills? I think the role of business has changed so much. In our time, in our generation, it's so much more than an architecture to, to generate money and to generate profits. There's a relationship that every company has with society and not every company, not every organisation is ready to step into that relationship with society and there's some honouring of how they treat their people, how they support their people, how they grow their people because whether they're coming into their organisation or they're leaving their organisation or they're consumers of that organisation, they're impacting society whether they like it or not. So they may as well take a positive, proactive role rather than putting their hands over the ears and going, blah, 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 it's not my job. Whose job is it? It's everyone's job. It's not government. It's not education. It's everybody. It's you, me, everyone. Between you, me and the gatepost, it's all <laughs> happening, Sunil. Now, Lisa, we've been around the block, you and I. We've had careers that have extended for some time, decades even. What do you reckon makes a bad boss? Is it their personality? Is it their competency? Is it the company culture? What mm. makes someone a bad boss? Oh, that's a long-winded Question and answer, we could probably go off forever with that one. But I think what sits underneath a bad boss is usually fear. That's, that's been my experience. There's some fear factor at play, whether it's their fear of themselves or the fear that's being bestowed upon them in their role. And fear changes people enormously, as you and I have seen. It can force people to go and sell their grandmother if necessary, because they feel threatened or they feel scared or worried about something being taken off them. Or there was a spike in grandmother prices at the time. Potentially, absolutely. <laughs> but when I see the removal of fear, that's when I see, like, trust and respect and reciprocity coming into play. But it's hard for the two to coexist. So you're mm. either going to be a fear-based leader or you're going to be a heart-based leader. And a heart-based leader is certainly not someone who can't handle tough conversations or make tough decisions, but they're doing it from a place of respect and trust rather than fear. So can good bosses, fearful bosses, become good bosses, heart-based bosses, and how? Yeah, look, I think they can. It comes back to context and the recent, I'm talking last hundred years, have shaped the way organisations and leaders model themselves. We've had lots of war-based, military-based styles of leadership put up the flagpole for us, whether they be in politics, corporate or social enterprise, what have you. And there's a bit of a softening, I think, happening now because we've over-generationally those really horrible events like World War II and all the other wars and conflicts that are still happening but not quite as bad, perhaps. That's just my perspective. I know that's not everyone's. And so there's a bit of a softening, there's a bit of a wake-up culture where people are becoming more conscious about who they are, their impact on the planet and each other, what have you. Can bad fear-based bosses become good heart-based bosses? And how? I think they have to want to. They might not even see that in themselves. Generally, what I've observed or what I've experienced is there's some sort of catalyst where people have this wake-up 
to themselves and they acknowledge that's the place that they have been operating from and they put their hand up for help and they surround themselves with the right people and the right tools and education. So I have seen it, absolutely. And one of the most powerful examples of that is people who have been in those roles and are brave enough to share their vulnerability and tell the world, tell their team, I was one of those bad bosses and now I know that I was a bad boss. I'm working really hard on not being a bad boss. That's super powerful. You've got to get behind people like that. Think about, say, for example, a a bad boss-employee relationship. It's almost like an abusive relationship. Somebody saying, I'm really sorry, it'll never happen again, kind of raises red flags for me. Oh, yeah. Look, there's a level of sincerity in there, and I think a lot of people will say it, but they won't actually do the work. That's why I was saying the ones that are brave enough to come out and say, I was this, and now I'm not, or I'm actually working on changing it, that's where the power is. But those people who just say it and then turn around and do something really bad again, there's your red flag. You've got to walk away from it and it's not your problem. You can't fix them until they want to be fixed. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lisa. It's been a pleasure, Sunil. I love talking to you. Coming up after the break, well... If you're a leader with imposter syndrome but you want to change and become a better leader, how can you do it? Our next guest reckons she's found the way to help you do just that. See you soon on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio with me, Sunil Badami. Disrupt Radio. And we're back on The Next Shift on Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. Okay, we know who becomes a bad boss and why they're a bad boss, but what practical steps can bosses who fear they're bad or maybe not as good as they could be take to regain their team's trust? Beerton Orderin is the director and founder of Team Talks, which empowers clients, including EY, TPG Telecom, Transport New South Wales and more, to cultivate psychological safety, trust and belonging in hybrid work settings. And she's got a very interesting method to ensure that everyone in the team can understand and appreciate good leadership. Great to have you back, Beata. Well, it's great to be back. I'm excited to speak more. What makes a good leader or manager? Ah, that's a good question. There's, of course, many things. The first thing that comes to mind for me is self-awareness. Knowing who am I? who's my authentic self and understanding that the way I think might not be the same way my people think. And that means that their needs might be different to mine when I look at how to be managed, for example, how to be motivated, how to stay on track. Some people like to be monitored and some people hate it. So knowing that is already a great step forward. How can managers and leaders become more effective Two years ago now, I started to work as a trainer in productivity. We train leaders, executive leaders, the company is called Work Smarter Live Better, which is a world-class training operator for productivity. And you learn how your brain works the best, to get the best out of your brain, how your head works and the needs. The Peter Principle, formulated by the Canadian hierarchologist Lawrence Peters, suggests that And we all know this, right, that people tend to rise to the level of their incompetence and that 
He also said that work is only accomplished really by those who haven't yet reached their level of incompetence and that accomplishment in one role doesn't necessarily translate into leadership. So you might be a great salesperson or marketer, but it doesn't necessarily make you a good manager. So how can organisations find the right leaders for teams or projects, given that you're usually promoted on the basis of your performance in another role? Yeah. I like to quote Simon Sinek on that one, who's a thought leader in positive leadership moving forward and author of, of the book, Know Your Why. And he said this, in any given team, you can ask the team, who here in the team is the person that keeps everyone together? Who is the person that keeps the glue of the team? And that should be the person to be the leader. Because that's the other part of the work I do, which is my own business, where we look at how can we create deeper and more meaningful connection within the team. Because all research shows that this is a second huge, actually the biggest driver for business success. So far, we only spoke about productivity, which is the individual success and productivity. But if you look at the business sense, it is the team output that can achieve more than the sum of the individual. And if you want to achieve a team output, then you need to have a great team culture and a culture where people feel safe, where people feel seen and heard and acknowledged to do their best work. I've met or had a lot of bad managers. So can you actually teach people to become not just better managers or less shit managers, but actually good managers? We can teach empathy. That is a skill. And research shows you can teach empathy, which is a skill to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Even for workplace sociopaths? When we talk sociopath or narcissists, for example, or bullies, that is a mental health condition. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but mental health conditions is... I don't want to excuse this. It's almost something that where your brain is rewired in the incorrect way. So you, can you teach them how to be, like, not assholes? I don't want to answer that question. I'm not a psychologist. I think you can help them with strategies, like you have almost like a tactic that they can learn in order to be better. But of course, they have to first make the choice. Do I want to be better? So when I look at sociopaths, to use your word, which is extreme, which I hope should never, should normally not be in a leadership position. But they often are. No one would say Elon Musk is particularly empathetic, would you? Could you make Elon Musk a better manager or person? It goes back to the choice. Do they want to? I think that's the key question. If people don't want to change and they don't see that there is a problem, no, you won't be able to change them. But if people see there is an opportunity and I want to improve, then you can make, then you can help them. Why do you offer leadership training to everyone in a team? Because I think we overlook the opportunity of peer-to-peer connection. I actually think it's too much on a manager's or leader's shoulder to be responsible for everyone feeling great. 
because it's the one-on-one interaction with you and I that we have every day that makes culture. It's not just the manager to employee. It's actually employee to employee and be respectful. So the peer-to-peer connection is super powerful. The other problem I see is when I just teach leaders, guess where the competence goes? It stays in the head of the leader because a leader is not necessarily a facilitator. That was me when I started as a manager the first time. I had a great training and I wanted to share it all with my team. And I sat in this training and I thought, gosh, I wish my whole team could sit here with me because then we would all be on the same page, have the same story and can have totally different conversations. Yet being back in the office, I had the best intentions. But guess what? Time, constraints, deadlines. We were a retail-facing office, so you can never have all people out at the same time. So you need something that's flexible. So I think a lot of things are getting lost. When we look at research, LinkedIn, for example, asks companies, what is the ROI on the expense of leadership development training? And it's 4%. 4% of billions being spent when we look at professional development training. And I believe the big problem is that we don't give it to the teams where the people actually need it. You give it to one person, that's where it stays. You, or you give it to the highest performers. And there's a problem again, because you just help the highest performers and the ones that is the lowest will never get any better. It's a bit like the, what do you call the wine barrels? There's a hole in the barrel. The water will never get higher than that hole. And that's what team is. The team is never better than the lowest performing. So lifting up everyone collectively is hugely powerful. Bad bosses don't just affect our mental health or workplace culture and morale. They have a tangible effect on productivity, profitability and retention. In a very tight labour market, if your workforce keeps leaving, it might have something to do with your leadership. As our experts today pointed out, you can't change your leadership style unless you want to change. And it can be hard, especially if you're unsure of your leadership capabilities, not to be defensive. But just as the only sane person in the asylum is the only one who questions if they might be mad, good leaders are always asking how they can do better or be better, just as they inspire their teams to do and be better too. Don't just assume you're a great leader because of the job title. Because the best leaders make sure that they know how they're doing by constantly checking in with their team and making sure that they tailor their leadership style to get the best out of the people they lead. No matter how good we are at what we do, we can always use new perspectives and ideas to keep us fresh and our team motivated because if they're not happy, well, they'll either complain, leave or even litigate. Can you afford to be a bad boss? Or allow bad managers to spoil good work? With that... It's time to clock off this shift. Thanks to Lyndall Hughes of Q5 Partners, Human Arts' Lisa Tongalidis and Birta Norderen from Team Talks. Find out more about what they do at q5partners.com, humanart.com.au and teamtalks.com.au. So, have you ever had a bad boss? How did you resolve your issues with them? And what do you reckon makes a good manager or leader? Let us know on our socials on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, and of course, LinkedIn. This is Disrupt Radio. I'm Sunil Badami. See you next time for the next shift. Disrupt Radio, the sound of Australian entrepreneurial spirit.